All right, friends, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. This is our daily look at the Torah portion. Today, we actually have we actually have um, some ground to make up. Not like we're trying to make up ground, but we are trying to at the same time because our Torah portion started on Sunday. We don't meet on Sundays. We met yesterday. Yesterday, we only did the first reading, which is really for Sunday. So we're up to reading number two. And... Um, we got two and three potentially to explore today. Yesterday we had a wonderful discussion about law and order and criminal justice and associated themes. Today we will continue our exploration of the Torah portion of Shoftim. All right, let me pull this up on my end. Give me a moment. Here we go. <coughs> I got this now. Um, sharing my screen. Boom. Okay. Here we go. Now we talk about... Now we are going to open up today... We're going to open today's reading with a discussion about the monarchy. Hey, Olia. Welcome. This is a conversation about the Jewish monarchy. What, what are the laws that govern a Jewish king? And as you'll see, there's a very strong intention here to make sure that corruption does not proliferate when it comes to monarchies. By the way, I'm going to stop sharing for a moment. I know I just started sharing, but I'm going to stop sharing as, as soon as I started. Um, have you ever, has it ever come to your attention, whether in real life, you know, news, or whether in shows or books or whatever it is, movies, that there's been corruption amongst monarchies? Is that a thing that, you've, uh, that you're familiar with? Corruption in monarchies? Yes? Yeah. Corruption? Yes. Was there ever a monarchy that wasn't corrupt is really the question I should be asking. So much corruption, so much, you know, just terrible unlawfulness and lawlessness. Okay, so this is what the Torah tries to preempt in its conversation about the Jewish monarchy. The Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse number 14. When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you. So again, this is a location-based mitzvah. This is a mitzvah that kicks in. In the promised land, the land of Israel. So when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and live therein, which is a reference to the 14 years that it would take to conquer and settle the land. So after you come in and get settled, let's continue. Moses continues telling those people that will shortly be going into the land. And you say, I will set a king over myself, like all the nations around me. In other words, when you're in Israel and things are good and things are calm and you're going to say to yourselves, hey, let's have a king like every other nation has a king. So Moses tells the people, and this is in Jewish law, you shall set a king over you. In the Hebrew, it's som tasim alecha melech. Again, a double expression of place or set. Som tasim, which sometimes would be translated as Set, you shall set, or you shall surely set. Although here, that word surely is not written. Um, so we have to just imagine that it's there. You shall definitely set a king over you. One whom the Lord, back inside, one whom the Lord your God chooses. So the king has to be some sort of divine choice. Which begs the question, how does God choose a king? What is this, some sort of like spiritual reality show? Um, imagine. The show is called Jewish King, uh, premiering this fall. You have like 10 candidates. 
and whoever God gives the rose to or the crown to, like each episode, that's the I mean, what what what's going on over here. So the Torah explains, Moses explains that this is going to be a human-driven choice, but it will also be something that is divinely ordained. And as we know, as it played out in the books of the, the prophets that we read, the book of, um, of Judges and Joshua and the book of Judges and the book of Kings, so we see this process by which kings are appointed. And there's divine intervention with this. So you shall set a king over you, one whom the Lord your God chooses. From among your brothers, you shall set a king over yourself. That means that a Jewish king has to be Jewish. Jewish sovereignty over the Jewish people. You shall not appoint a foreigner over yourself, one who is not your brother. And again, brother here is a euphemism for member of the tribe, i.e. someone who is Jewish. So, to be a Jewish king, you have to be Jewish, one of the qualifications, not a foreigner. By the way, this foreign rule is what, has, is what led historically to, um, to the destruction of the temple when foreign powers got involved and got enmeshed in the Jewish uh, governance. That's when things began to tailspin. Let's continue. And here we have some um, checks and balances that are being placed on the king. Now, typically you would think that the king is at the top and thus above the law. Well, that's maybe something the king would think, but that's not something that flies in Jewish law and in the Torah. Here we go, verse 16. Only, however, the Torah says, he, the king, may not acquire many horses for himself so that he will not bring the people back to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. For the Lord said, you shall not return that way anymore. There's a biblical prohibition against returning to Egypt. Now, yes, you're allowed to go to Egypt if business or health-related or whatever, like if it's, if it's necessary, but not if it's, you know, to grab the latest um, horse that you want to add to your horse collection. So the fear here is that if the king acquires many horses, and Egypt was a place that had a good horse collection, so that was the fear that you're going to go back to Egypt to get horses. So don't have horses, don't go to Egypt, but really there's another element as well, which is possessions. Don't, if you're the king, you think you could have anything you want and everything you want, not, not necessarily. Minimize, don't, don't have a lot of horses. Horses were then a symbol of wealth. Um, it's not befitting, it's not becoming of the king, of a Jewish king, to have that. Next prohibition, next check and balance, verse 17 and he shall not take many wives for himself. Again, something that historically kings would do. They would have many horses, which is symbolic of possessions in general. Many wives, they would have many women. That's again something that is not kosher. Jewish law, Torah says, not kosher for a Jewish king. And his heart must not turn away, and he shall not acquire much silver and gold for himself. So here we have this idea, not too many wives, not, um, not his heart turning away, which could either mean arrogance or other forms of turning away from a spiritual path, and not too much uh, silver and gold, not too much riches. So these are really the, um, the limitations that are placed on a Jewish king. And a person might say, well, if, that's what a, if a king can't have these things, so then what's the fun of being king? Okay, who said the king was about having fun? So typically, historically, kings... Essentially, what I'm just going to use a word here, abuse their power, right? I mean, the word that I'm using is abuse. They abuse their power. They say, well, I'm the king. 
I'm above the law. I can do whatever I want. So I could have whatever I want. And, you know, cue up uh, corruption and all sorts of horrific behavior and immoral behavior. And the Torah says, if you want a king, you go into Israel, you want a king, you can have a king. It's not a bad thing. But not a king like all the nations. Not a king like every other king. This has to be a Jewish king. And a Jewish king is someone who is, who is um, dedicated or who answers to a higher authority. And in order to remind the king that even he, yes, even the almighty king, not the almighty, but even the mighty king, answers to a higher authority, i.e. almighty God, that's where the next verse comes in, verse 18. And it will be, when he sits upon his royal throne, that he shall write for himself two copies of the Torah. Look at that. The king should either write or have written two copies of the entire Torah on a scroll. And by the way, if you want to know where in Torah it says Torah, there you go, right there. It says Torah, HaTorah, the Torah. Right? Two copies of this Torah on a scroll from that Torah, which is before the Levitic Kohanim. So, Basically, there is a Torah scroll that is kept with the Kohanim, with the priests who come from the tribe of Levi, of the, the Levitic Kohanim, the Kohanim that come from the tribe of Levi. So they have a copy of the Torah, and the king should copy an additional two copies from that scroll. Take a look. Let's continue. And it shall be with him. There should be one Torah scroll that always is with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Look at that so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God to keep all the words of this Torah and these statutes to perform them. This line, this verse number 19, says everything you know, everything, well, verse 20 is going to continue, but this, these two verses, 19 and 20, tell you everything that you need to know about, about the Jewish monarchy and about the standard that it was meant to, to be held to. Basically, um, the king was meant to study the Torah, fear God, be a God-fearing person, Keep the words of Torah and mitzvot, not above the law, under God, just like everyone else, under God. Maybe leading the people in various ways, but not above God, not above the law, not even close. And thus, when he has the Torah and is reading it every single day, then this is done, verse 20, so that his heart will not be haughty over his brothers. Look at this. So that his heart will not be haughty over his brothers. Even though he's the king, he will not be arrogant. And so that he will not turn away from the commandment either to the right or to the left. This is an expression that we've had multiple times in the last few weeks, right? Deviating from the law is typically described in Torah as turning to the right or the left. It means the law is whatever the center, the law would be euphemistically described as the center, the path. And right or left is... Not where we want to be. So this is, this is the reason why he's meant to have a Torah, to study the Torah, so that he's God-fearing, keeping Torah and mitzvot, not being haughty over his brothers, not turning away from the commandment, in order. And if the king does this and abides by this, this is in order that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his sons among Israel. The implication is if a king is corrupt, if a king is not kosher, does not follow these uh, these regulations, the king will not last. The king's reign will not last. His kids will not reign after him. It's going to be an end to that monarchy, to that dynasty. The only way for this to continue is with righteousness, 
and with, um, with the spiritual righteousness, not just, you know, creating just laws for the people, that goes without saying, but also a sense of surrender to something above him, above the king. This is a very powerful idea. And it's, it's hard for us, I think, maybe it's not, but maybe it is. So in case it is, I want to articulate it. It might be hard for us who do not live in a country with a king. We did not grow up, I don't believe, any of us grew up in a monarchy. Um, even in England, what do they have, a constitutional monarchy? Yeah, the queen is more of a, I don't want to, I'm not dissing the queen, but I don't, I don't believe that uh, there's, there's like, you know, super strong powers over there. I'm pretty sure it's more of like a figure type position with some limited, with some limited powers. Um, but the Jewish monarchy was a monarchy of like a monarchy of old where the king had, had power. A lot of power. And the problem with power is that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's just the way it is. Power is a corrupting force. It's very seductive. It's very seductive. When you get a taste, typically, when people get a taste of power, they enjoy it. And typically, when you get a taste of power, you want more power. And you want to show others that you have the power. And it becomes a thing where... You know, there's arrogance and there's oppression and it just, it's, it's a bad combo. And so the Torah, Moses, before his passing, the Torah, Jewish law, is trying to do everything in its power. No guarantees. Everyone has free choice. No one's free choice is magically taken away just because there's a commandment against it. Right? If only, right? If only it were so easy to do right because God said not to. Oh, good. I don't even want to do that. If God said, we're good. That's not the way it works. We have our own desires and our own ideas and our own passions and and sometimes we get out of control. The Torah is begging us. When you, play, when you appoint the king, and when the king is appointed, the king should remember who's the boss. Right? Who's the boss? Was that Tony Danza? Was that, was that Tony Danza? Who's the boss? Remember Charles in charge? Am I going back too far or not far enough? What's happening here? Okay. Sil Silver Spoon. Remember these shows? Silver Spoon? Yes. Um, remember who's the boss? Who's the boss? Silver Spoon. What else was there? <laughs> All right, whatever. Anyway, back to our story. It's in well, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Let me take a trip down memory lane. No, I'm kidding. No, let me just finish this, this long um, trip down memory lane sentence. It's, in, it's, it, it's critical for the king to remember who the boss is. And you know who's not the boss? The king. I mean, with a capital B. Yes, the king has a role and an important role to play amongst the Jewish people. But the king is not the boss. The king is not in control. If the king thinks that he's in control, then everyone's in trouble, including the king. Everyone is in danger. That's the most dangerous scenario. What's the solution? For the king to be God-fearing. For the king to have his copy of the Torah always on his person. And not just as a token or as a uh, symbol, right? But actually to read from it every single day, to study the Torah, fear God, keep Torah and mitzvot, not become arrogant, and remember who's in charge. If a king were to do this, everyone's okay. If a king forgets this and thinks that they're in charge and they have all the power and they need to show everyone that they have the power, everyone's doomed. That's it. We're done. I don't know of any monarchy that lasted without corruption. In fact, I would put out that challenge 
Not that I'm basing that off of, you know, a comprehensive, you know, knowledge of history. But I've never, I don't remember hearing of a monarchy, maybe one generation, but that, that continued on without corruption. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. Great. I'm glad I'm wrong. I'm glad there was somebody who got it right. This is very difficult to get right. Even amongst the Jewish people, we didn't get this right. We didn't get it right. The first king was Saul. What happened with Saul? He didn't listen to God. Right? Then you have David. Well, David had his, his challenges, but David righted the ship when he made a mistake. Listen, no one's perfect. When he made a mistake, and, you know, depending on how we understand the mistake, when he did what he did, he said, The first words when the prophet chastised him, when Nasan Hanavi, Natan Hanavi, when the prophet Natan came to him and said, David, what did you do? The first words out of David's mouth were, I've sinned to God. And the rest of his life, he lived with tshuva, with repentance. The half of the book of Psalms is about him bearing his soul and, 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 and asking for repentance and trying to find, you know, connect with Hashem. If not the whole book of Psalms. So, so David got it right. Um, Shlomo Melch, King Solomon got it right. But then after that, it started heading downhill. So what I'm saying is, even when we know what we're supposed to do, even when we have the, the laws in place for the king, free choice is not, is not magically taken away, and corruption almost inevitably abounds. That's the way it is. All right, Donna, jump in. So it seems, is it true that this, this conversation is not Moses reiterating the past, but this is new? New. This is new. This is new information. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah, so, so yeah. very important. Exact. Donna is raising a very important point that we have to rem- remember when reading this fifth book of Torah. So a lot of it is Moses recalling the past. A lot of it is Moses reminding them of past laws that he told them um, and adding some new, not adding on his own, but clarifying some, some new details or some additional details. But some of this fifth book of Torah contains new laws. In fact, in fact, I have my handy dandy Gutnik edition of the Chumash here on my bookshelf. And I'm going to open it up because in the back of this edition of the Chumash, it actually lists all 613 mitzvot and which ones come from which Torah portion. It's really cool to see which Torah portions have mitzvot. And if you see a mitzvah listed, it means it's new or it's adding something new. So, for example, this week's Torah portion, which is Shoftim. Give me a moment. I'm going to pull up the number of, of uh, commandments. So, first of all, last week's Torah portion, Re'eh, had 17 positive mitzvot. That means things to do. And 38 prohibitions, things not to do. That was last week's Torah portion. And um, this week's Torah portion... Um, Shoftim contains 14 positive mitzvot and 27 prohibitions. So 14 plus 27 is a grand total of 41. Did I get that right? I'm pretty sure I got that right. 41 mitzvot out of 613 in this week's Torah portion. So yes, there's a lot of new material in this week's Torah portion. Yes. So is is Hashem deciding now then preparing because Moses will no longer be there. So then instead of the role that Moses played, which was more ad hoc on his own volition, right now the formal royalty. Good. Leadership. Good. Excellent question. 
In other words, if I get to the heart of your question, tell me if I'm right here. Your question is, well, what's wrong with Moses or a Moses-like figure as a leader? Why do we need a king? Is that your question, sort of? Right. What's the transition? Yes. Why all of a sudden? Yeah. Good. Good. And then the question is, you know, there was Moses, you know, back in the, in, the, in the day of Moses. There was Moses and Aaron, and Moses was the leader, and Aaron was the high priest. So it seems like you had a leader, and a, you had like a spiritual leader, you know, high priest figure, and a pragmatic leader, Moses, who's also a spiritual leader, but seems like, okay, we're co- our bases are covered. So what does a king do? And, and how does that transition happen? Excellent question. There's a lot of um, conversation. And even halachic conversation. You know, when you get into definitions, you're defining roles and everything. There's a big question or, or a, a conversation about the status of Moses. Was he a prophet and a spiritual leader? Was he a king? Even without formally being, you know, coronated as such, did he have the role, did he play the role of a king? You know, in addition to his teaching, Torah, and that sort of thing. I don't want to get into that elaborate discussion, but, but you should know that it is a discussion, and there's a lot written on that. Essentially, once the, once the dust settles in Israel, they will have two primary uh, leadership roles that need to be filled. One is the king, and the other one is the prophet. And the king is guiding the people, let's say, on a more existential level, like fighting, like leading the people into battle and, you know, um, a defensive war, running the country, collecting taxes or levying taxes, and not actually like the king is going door to door, but you know, making sure the infrastructure, just running the country, right on a day to day physical level. Of course, with all the ministers and whatever it was that, that the assistants that were involved, and then you have the prophet who kind of took that role as a spiritual leader conveying the word of God. So Moses really played both roles of prophet and king wrapped into one. Whereas later that kind of was divided a little bit into the role of king and the role of prophet in addition to the role of high priest, which was the third um, branch, if you will, of this um, governance. Saul was the first king. Saul was the first king. Saul was the first king, but... But you should know before even Saul, there were leaders that were called judges, shoftim. They were called judges. Why were they called judges? Well, they were literally judges, but they also, when people had issues and disputes and whatever, they came to the judges. But the judges also kind of acted on some level to govern the people and, and led them into battle also. So that was kind of like a king. So for example, for example Samson, you know, Samson was one of the judges. Um, Deborah, she was one of the judges. Um, That's interesting that a woman was. Yeah, a yeah, she was one of the she was one of the judges. Um, who else? Whatever. I mean, there were there were other um, there there were a whole list of judges. There's a whole book called the Book of Judges that lists all the judges. Many Did judges. The judges stay in place after the king came. So? I mean, there were judges in the court, but not in that position of leadership. It kind of transitioned from. The judges, and one of the reasons for this is there was a lot of corruption. There were good judges and not so good judges, and or I'm sorry, I don't know if the corruption was was we could fault the judges, but during the days of the judges, there was a lot of corruption amongst the people because the judges didn't wield enough authority, if you will. It was kind of like 
you know, they did have some authority, but not like a king. And that's when the people, in fact, I think the book of Judges either begins or ends with, you know, in the days of the judges, people did whatever they wanted. That was, it's kind of like the line that repeats itself a few times in the book of Judges. Like everyone did whatever their heart desired. And it was kind of like there wasn't any like strong leadership to either inspire or to, you know, set up. That's why a king was needed to get more. Exactly. Now you should know, you should know. When, when the Jews approached the prophet, Samuel, at that time. Was he the first prophet? Not the first prophet. I mean, Moses was a prophet, and there were many prophets, but he was the, the prophet around at the time that the first king was coronated. So he was involved with, yeah. you know, God communicating, you know, or, or leading him to Saul and that sort of thing. So which is a, there's a very interesting story behind that, which, which I don't want to get into right now. Um, but when the people approached Samuel, Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet, and said, we would like a king. Can you help us with this? Samuel gets very angry and he says, why do you need a king? Like, what's wrong? Do you, do you want a king because you don't want to listen to God anymore? So some read it as he was getting defensive over his own power that he had because there were judges that had some power. And then there was the prophet who carried the spiritual message and, and that influence. And some read it as he was getting very defensive. Like, I don't want to share or I don't want to create this, this new position because what, what does that mean? It might usurp the power from the prophet, from me. That's a, that's a bit of a cynical way of reading it. The way we understand it traditionally in the commentaries is that he was concerned that they asked for a king to be like all the other nations. A king that wouldn't necessarily lead them where they need to go, but a king that they would have like a, like a puppet king that they could control. And that would necessarily take away from the integrity of, of Judaism and the Jewish mission. Anyway, it's, it's complicated. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot to read up on this topic. And I'm not going to do it justice in, in a few minutes here. But there's a lot to read up on, first of all, Jewish history in general, but also Jewish governance historically. You know, there was the Moses and Aaron dual. And, and, and Korach had a problem with that. You know, Korach said... Let's overthrow this power dynamic, and he and and that's a, anyway. But that was one dynamic, and then Joshua took over. It was Joshua and Eliezer. They took over from Moses and Aaron, one being the leader, one being the high priest. And then there were judges, and then and prophets, and eventually it got into this system where there was a king, and it lasted for a good few generations, and and it 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 became a little corrupt, and it ended with the destruction of the temple, both temples. So. It didn't work out well, ultimately, at the end, but that's, um, this, this is what was trying to be preempted all along. God was trying to preempt this, the Torah was trying to preempt this, and this is the communication that we're getting here about the, um, the checks and balances for a king. Um, okay, so that, that takes us to the end of, of reading, too. Let's jump into, perfect, because today's Tuesday, third, third day of the week, third reading. Let's begin that right here. Okay, this is something that we've talked about before, but it's always good to, to remind ourselves and good to learn some little some new details as well. The Levitic Kohanim, the entire tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Remember, they were not given, you know, states. They were not allocated large pieces of land. They had cities. In other tribal territories, they didn't get their own formal tribal territory. 
So they don't have a portion or inheritance. The Lord's fire offerings and his inheritance they shall eat. So how do they eat? How do they survive? Off of the sacrifices. There are certain sacrifices that the Kohanim ate from, and that's how they ate. But he shall have no inheritance among his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance as he spoke to him. Very short reading. And this shall be the Kohanim's due from the people. In other words, what did the Kohanim get from the populace? From those who perform a slaughter. Be it an ox or a sheep. So whoever's bringing an offering to slaughter, not every offering, some were burnt entirely in the altar, as you know. Um, but those that were not entirely burnt and stuff was either eaten by the, by, the, by the one who brought it or given to the Kohen, this is what typically was given to the Kohen. He shall give the Kohen the foreleg, the jaws, and the ma. The first, okay, so that's one category of gifts. Next category, the first of your grain, your wine, and your oil, and the first of the fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. So these are all gifts to the Kohen. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes. God has chosen the priests from amongst the tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord, he and his sons all the days. So here we see, by the way, how Torah defines chosen. You've heard me say this, I don't know, countless times. Chosen doesn't necessarily mean better. It just means designated for a specific task. And we see this here very poignantly stated. The Kohen is chosen. The tribe of Levi is chosen from the other tribes. What does it mean chosen? Better? Better. I don't know better. What's chosen? Chosen for a specific task. And what is that task? To stand and serve. So if you like standing and serving, then great. Right? Then it's an upgrade. If maybe you'd rather just live your life and, and, and have a job and and just do your thing, well, then maybe that wouldn't be your first choice. It's not like the, not like the Levium and Kohanim had a choice. I'm just saying, does chosen mean better? Depends who you ask. I don't know. If you like it, sure. But otherwise, it means that you have a specific task. You've been selected, right? It's like those phone calls that you get. You've been randomly selected for a cruise, but this is legit, right? This is not that, that fake stuff. This is real. You've been selected. You've been chosen to stand and serve. In the name of the Lord, he and his sons, all the days. So that's it. All right, so what, what is the upshot? Pretty, pretty quick reading here. What's the upshot of, of the third reading, which, which is chapter 18, verses 1 through 5? It's the idea that Levi, the, the Levites, and the Kohanim, who come from the tribe of Levi, they don't have a portion. They don't have a piece of the land. And uh, they're taken care of by the, by the people, by the community. All right. Um, Good. That takes us to the end of our conversation today, really inside. Um, tomorrow, we're going to talk about more about the Levites. Okay. And sorcery. Tomorrow is Levites and sorcery. Always a good topic. Um, what takeaway um, do I think is important to take away today from our conversation? So just going back to, um, to what we said just now, you know, number one, it's, it's making sure to take care of each other. You know, not everyone has the same opportunity or the same role or the same standing in society. And, you know, we have to, we have to think about each other and take care of each other. And what we said, you know, in, in a previous conversation, in the previous reading, reading number two, all about the Jewish monarchy, it's important that power not go to our heads. 
that responsibility not be abused. Um, it's so easy to, to abuse power and responsibility. It's so easy on any level. You know, you put someone in charge of, I don't know, security, anything, and it's easy to abuse that power. It's very easy. I mean, I don't need to tell you what goes on. I mean, we all know what goes on in the world, right? Somebody has any, in any area, an element of responsibility, and it could be, it could be abused and misused. And so the Torah reminds us from the highest position, the king. The king has to be humble, has to be God-fearing, has to have a Torah, has to read from the Torah every day. The king needs to recognize that even he answers to a higher authority. When kings look at themselves as servants of God, everyone is better. Everyone is better off. And I, I guess that's the blessing that we should wish each other. Right? Leaders who recognize, who, re, leaders who are humble, and this is Jewish leaders, global leaders, you know, spiritually, all across the board. Leaders that are humble and subservient and answer to a high authority. Right? The best thing you want from a leader is someone who has an element of, of, uh, of what we call in, in Kabbalah and Chassidus, Bittel, a little, little surrendering of self to something greater. All right, that is it for today. Oh, oh, one more point, practical takeaway. And all of us are also, we're, all of us are leaders on some level in our lives, right? Whether in business or in family or in community or even within ourselves, right? We're our own leader almost. We always have to remember to be humble. Humble leadership is... Is the, um, is the greatest form of leadership. All right. Thank you all for joining. Any questions, comments before we close out? Yes, Donna. So we're obligated to read the Torah every day. What is the specific obligations to read all of the other books, like the books of Judges and the Psalms and the books of Prophets? Excellent question. Excellent question. So Donna's asking, to clarify your question, we know that there's a mitzvah to study Torah every single day. It's a mitzvah, right? Mitzvah. Ideally, you study Torah. We, ideally, we're supposed to study Torah day and night, but because it's not practical, we got to work. You got to do other things. Got to eat. Got to sleep, right? So, okay. So we have some time, uh, some time to ourselves also for those other things. But ideally, you have a free moment. You study Torah. So the question is, well, what what fits into that obligation? What's called? What is called Torah? Is it only the five books of Moses, or is it or is it a little bit more beyond that? So the answer is. There's two definitions of Torah. Torah could either refer to the five books of Moses exclusively, or Torah could be broadened to refer to all of the written Torah, Torah Shabbat which includes the books of the prophets and the judges and all, all 24 holy Jewish books. It can also be expanded to the oral Torah, which means to the Mishnah and the Talmud and Kabbalah and Chassidus and Halacha Jewish law. And every, you know, it could be expanded. I, I can't say everything, but to a much broader range. So, when you speak about studying Torah, it's important every day to study some elements from the written Torah, but also some elements from the oral Torah, from the oral tradition. So, which is why in the morning blessings, every single morning in the prayer book, if you look in the beginning of the prayer book, of course, there's the Modani prayer, where we thank God for waking up. Um, then we thank God for other, you know, physical blessings that we have, abilities the physical abilities that we have. And then we say a blessing 
um, about Torah study. Thank you, Hashem, for giving us the Torah, and we thank God for giving us the Torah, and that is the blessing of Torah study. And then right after that, we read a few things, a few passages. One passage from the written Torah, and one passage from the oral Torah. And when I say written and oral, I mean one from the five books of Moses, and one from the Mishnah. So Torah study, and we do both, we specifically do both. The, the verses from Scripture that we read are the priestly blessing. It's a good way to get, to get the day started, right? Yivrech Hashem Yishmerech, etc. So uh, may Hashem bless you and guard you, so that's, uh, or watch you, and that's, that's a beautiful uh, piece of Torah to recite in the morning, first thing. And then we say a Mishnah. Talks about the reward of mitzvot and special mitzvot that we can do, which we've discussed on occasion here or there. That's a in separate our classes. book, right? That comes from a different book. Yeah, the mission is a separate book. So what? My, that's a bit of a long answer to your question, but the, the short answer is, it includes much more. When we talk about Torah study and our obligation to study Torah, it includes much more than the five books. It includes all twenty-four books of Torah, of of the written of the written Torah, as well as the books of the oral Torah, which includes the Mishnah and the Talmud and. Jewish law and halacha and Kabbalah and all that stuff. Now, if you're wondering, if, if you feel like, ugh, it's so hard to keep all these books, you know, I wish I had clarity on these books. Like, what is the written law? What's the oral law? What's the difference between Medrash and Talmud and Mishnah and Kabbalah and Chassidus and like all these, right, and Chakira and Musar? Like, what are all these things? Do I have a course for you? I am actually right now on the, um, one of the editorial committees for a new JLI course, a six-week course that's being prepared for not this year, next year, like 2022. And we're right now exploring the objectives of a course like this. But the, one of the obje objectives of a course like this would be that we all would have clarity, right, on what, what is what, what are the books, what, what is their genre, when were they written, Right? What are some highlights of that work itself? And how does it interplay? How does it inter interweave with the other areas of Jewish thoughts? Kind of like imagine like an outline of a puzzle with like six or seven or eight pieces and focusing on each piece of the puzzle as well as how they work together. So that would be the, um, the objective of that. So stay tuned. It's going to happen. It's basically the book about Jewish literacy or like a tour of the rabbi's library. So if you were to come over to my house or whatever it is and check out the library, and I would show, like, okay, here, here's this book and here's what this is. This is what that course is, but obviously in-depth and amazing. All right, good. Questions, comments? It's really Thank great. Thank you so much, Rabbi Ari. My pleasure, Sarah. Great to see you. Olia, Joy, Sarah, Donna, Ray, Sandrine. Great to see everybody. Um, as a reminder, tomorrow, DPP, same time. Um, tomorrow night, Wednesday night, we have Torah studies. Also, the JLI retreat is starting um, now. So join us, join me. Thursday, I'll be there. Thursday, we're not going to be having DPP. So we'll take Thursday off. We'll be back Friday for an expanded catch-up version of, uh, of Daily Power Parsha. Okay. Um, any questions or comments? No. All right. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is that part of like who uh, can be a king somewhere else in the Torah? 
Oh, out, outside of this discussion today? Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. It's, um, I don't know. No, I think this is this is the one. Yeah. I remember reading, but maybe it was just a commentary that it says that the king cannot be a convert, and it doesn't say here. Mm. Right. Commentary. Uh, Unless it's in the commentaries. Let's see. I don't. Um, yeah, but 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 a convert is someone who's now Jewish. So the question is, is that another verse? That is there another verse that deals with that? Um, from you know here it, it translates from your brethren meaning born, born into it. It might be a limud from that. Um, let me look in this chumash to see if there's some commentary. It's a good question. I don't, I don't remember there being another part of Torah that talks about kings, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. It just means that I don't remember it right now. Um, and here I want to point out in the commentary, it says, must not have many wives, meaning, but only 18. For yeah. <laughs> King David had six wives, and he was told... Uh, and if these are too few, I will add for you like these, and again like these. So three times. Three times six, yeah, 18. Well, there you go. Well, now we'll know not to have more than 18 wives. By the way, this sounds obviously sounds a little foreign to our experience, and that's for a good reason. Um, I'm just looking here to see if there's discussion about being born Jewish to be a king. I don't see it in the good condition. Okay, I have to look up the commentaries. We'll see if it's if it's in there. Um, but back to your point about the um, about the number of wives. Yeah, I mean that would be a, a serious number. That would be I, I mean one could argue that eighteen is already too much, but listen, I'm not uh, who am I to to jump in on, you know, ancient Jewish conversation, but I think I think the underlying um, sentiment is very important here. And that is that it uh, it not be excessive, that there be humility. All right, king is the king, I guess. Anyway, so class is a class of um, this is Friedman. Freeman? Yes. Uh, it's gonna be in person or online? So Mrs. Freeman's class is gonna be in person. Okay. Yeah. But she live here, no. Atlanta. She lives in Atlanta, yeah. So it's an in-person class. In fact, I don't know if the email went out, but an email was supposed to go out um, that has like four different things that we're doing, getting ready um, for the holidays. And I see it did not go out. Okay. All right, well, look out. You know, I mean, it was supposed to go out, so it'll, it'll go out today at some point. Take a look for it. Uh, you can look at the website, but it's cool because the, the, the email kind of has everything collected. Yeah, no, I like all the graphic of all the upcoming class. I don't know, is it still that designer from Canada? Yeah, yeah, we got our, our, yeah, she's amazing, Cheryl. She's really good. Yeah. All right, good to see everybody. Sandrine, Ray, Donna, Olia, Sarah. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. All right. Bye. Bye.